Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Viktor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. So we've talked a lot about Brexit in this show, but we've never had a, an entire episode focused on Brexit and its impact on British democracy and democracy in general. We need to have that conversation. And to have it, I've invited Claire Fox, who's a London-based director of the Academy of Ideas and one of Britain's most pugnacious political pundits. Claire, welcome to Keen on Democracy. Good to be here. So, Claire, let's not get lost in the weeds here. We're talking in London in early to mid-April. I'm sure by the time this show comes out, something dramatic will have happened on the Brexit front in terms of Britain maybe being kicked out of the EU or doing a deal. But I'm more interested in standing back and figuring out, firstly, what this whole Brexit thing has been about, and secondly, and most importantly, what its impact has been on British democracy. So I think that actually, if it started off as a debate about whether the UK should be in the European Union, it's moved away from that and become a much bigger, deeper crisis of democracy. And there's a number of reasons for that. Partly, the row about whether Britain should be in the EU centred around sovereignty and whether the EU was democratic or not. So there was already a democracy debate of some sort. It was also the case that I think the British government at the time of the referendum saw the referendum itself as a way of, and they actually made this explicit, of handing over power to the electorate. I mean, they said, we can't resolve this. We are charging you with making this decision. It'll be a once-in-the-lifetime decision. It'll be a big, important constitutional change. You get to decide it. So this was the referendum in... In 2016. 2016. The British people voted on whether or not they should remain part of the EU. Isn't that a perfect example of democracy in action? Well, that's what I'm saying. You, you could say that the parliament asked the electorate in a direct way. I mean, you might not want to use referenda all the time, but in this instance, we were told this direct democracy would be the deciding factor. And your interpretation is that the parliament went for this plebiscite because the parliament itself couldn't resolve the issue. There's an argument about why, but certainly there was an internal argument within one of the political parties, the Conservative Party. Europe had haunted it. And I think the general view was, if we have a referendum, this will once and forever put the issue to bed. Now, what was assumed was that you'd have that referendum 
and that people in the UK would vote to stay in the EU. And then why? Because the assumption was that when it came to it, it was such a big, crazy decision to leave an institution that we'd been in for a long time. That sense would prevail. The status quo would work. So it underestimated what happened. What then happened was... But when you say, was that a media assumption? Was that a political assumption? I think it was a political was that a, assumption. A, a business assumption? Political, business and media assumption. I mean, there was some e- people... Even the people who were in favour of leaving? Yes. Even the people in favour of leaving suddenly thought, oh, now that we're going to be asked, it's going to be a struggle and a fight and an argument. And during the course of the months in the build-up to the referendum, it felt at the beginning as though nobody might vote. You know, maybe it would be not even a big turnout. But it gradually built up steam. And it's very interesting because the whole of the British establishment lined up to say, don't leave. Multinationals, banking. Well, Boris Johnson didn't. Yeah. Two or three well-known British politicians didn't. That is not quite the same as 80% of the elected MPs or all the main political parties or every single business leader. So it felt like a, a David Goliath fight. The inference was definitely everybody, and I mean everybody, including the Leave side, was shocked when the result came in. Right? So it was a perfect working of democracy. The interests of capital and culture were on one side, the people were on the other side, and the people won. Is that fair? So great excitement when that happened in, among some people, great shock. And you, what was your response? I, I, I campaigned for leave. I was surprised, but I was delighted. And so you're one of the few elites who actually were in favor of leaving? Yeah. And I was hardly the most influential and not so influential as to be able to take on everyone. But yes, I was one of those. And politically, just to put everything on the table, politically, you're you're a left 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 critic of kind of EU capitalism. Is that fair? And in fact, there had been a tradition on the left in Britain of being historically hostile to the EU. But when Bush came to shove in the referendum, a lot of people on the left panicked and thought it would be associated with the right, with populist forces kind of fear-mongering around what it would mean. And so a lot of the left didn't campaign for leave or kind of were more either neutral or campaigned for remain. So it was quite an isolated... I was unusual, I'd say. And would you call yourself a Corbynite? A sympathetic. The interesting thing is is that I would agree with Jeremy Corbyn on, guess what, the EU until a referendum it. happened. No, oh. but I know one of the things as well, but I'm not a Labour Party supporter, straightforwardly. And then what do you make of the argument amongst some of the Remain people that the debate was somehow rigged that the leavers lied and dangled all these promises which they couldn't actually come through with? Well, everybody in that referendum behaved atrociously, in my view, on all sides. <laughs> there was a, you know, the idea that leavers uniquely lied or dangled promises would be to mischaracterize because what actually happened was that all of them said preposterously untruths. Isn't that what, politics? Isn't yeah, that the I'm nature not, of politics? I'm not complaining, am I? That's the point. I'm not complaining. The side that lost went on to say, we lost unfairly, even though they were the forces of the establishment on their side. They said, you uniquely lied on the Leave side. And you don't think that there's any, any legitimacy to that argument? I think that there was lies told on all sides. That's what I'm saying. But listen, something else happened, which maybe the listeners would be interested in, which was that there was an upsurge of, as it were, democratic engagement in the build-up to that referendum and subsequent to it of people talking about politics. I mean, you couldn't go to the pub or you couldn't go to the school gate or everywhere you went, people were saying, what are you going to do in the referendum? In other words, people took their role as voters seriously. They were told, you have 
one chance to change history. And they thought, oh God, this is serious. So they didn't just believe what leave leaders said or anyone else said. They kind of went off and they Googled and they asked their mates. I met some care workers where my mum is in a care home and they were saying, we've got it in North Wales. And they said, oh, Colin, we're having a staff meeting on it. We're talking about tariffs. And one lady said, we've got a family conference at home and my son's off in the library getting books. I mean, there was a sense of palpable democratic excitement. So then leave wins. And straight away, instead of everybody saying right now, this is the new focus for the UK, suddenly all of the people in power said, oh my God, what a disaster. The voters have got it wrong. This is an example of ignorant, you know, the equivalent of American deplorables, racists, because they don't like foreigners, which is a complete smear. These people need to be held in check. There was great insults thrown at the electorate. So from being a great democratic moment, it suddenly became a period in which everybody started to question whether democracy was any good. Was the response of the Remainers, who, as you've indicated, tend to be the elite themselves in media or in finance or in politics, was there self-interest there or were they just horrified with the bad taste of the electorate? I think it was a combination of both. I mean, I think it was a combination of thinking this will damage our business arrangements that have been set in place by experts who know what they're talking about. And suddenly all these kind of, to caricature it, plebs have emerged who don't know anything. But then there was a kind of distaste as well. They're not very well educated. They're not the kind of electorate we're used to. They seem to care about things we don't care about. They'd never been noticed before, i.e. the vast majority of people in this country. Most people who run society don't spend their time thinking about what people in Sunderland are worried about or what people in... But they do in elections, don't they? But the electoral first-past-the-post system means that there's, there's not the same attention to the electorate as there has been. But anyway... One, That's one, so far so good. The yeah, people so spoke yeah. and they said they don't want to stay part of the EU. Yeah. The subsequent story has been a fascinating one in relation to democracy an open expression of the problems of the electorate not being up to the job, expressed in a way that you would find distasteful in the past, anti-democratic trends being openly discussed. I want to emphasise that, by the way, millions of people voted Remain in good faith. They are voters too. I'm not trying to say everybody who voted Remain. It was pretty close vote, right? What was it? Was it 52-48? in percentage terms. But many of the people, in fact, most of my friends voted Remain and they accepted the vote. They lost. They thought the good guys had lost. <laughs> they then thought, oh, well, we're now leaving the EU. But from the point of view of the people running society, a different story emerges, which is that there's an attempt to say, oh, this is going to be so awful that we've got to negotiate some kind of a settlement with the EU that will cause the least change possible and the least disruption to the way things are which slightly misinterprets the vote that was so obviously about shaking up the status quo and change. And meanwhile, the government that had organized the referendum, David Cameron quit because he was in favor of staying. And Theresa May takes over, who also was a Remainer, right? Yes. And she said, well, I'm a Remainer. I mean, it was a shock when David Cameron left because it was a bit of a, oh my God, the prime minister who started this has kind of walked off. And where's the leadership there? There's then some internal bloodletting within the Conservative Party. May remains as not a voted for leader, but almost a default leader because there were so many fallouts. She says, well, don't worry, I will 
do what the people of the UK have demanded of us. We'll have Brexit. But then she called a general election fairly shortly afterwards. And by the way, just to go back to Cameron, a lot of people argue that he's the real villain of the piece by calling the referendum in the first place. What do you make of Cameron's decision to have the referendum? Well, I think that his motives might not have been the ones that I'd share. As I say, it might have been a kind of act of almost political cowardice anyway, to kind of hope that he could use the electorate as a stage army to resolve the EU question by having a referendum. Within his own party, which yeah. has been this yes, endless this fight. endless fight in the, his own party. He then thinks if he can get the electorate to vote Remain, it'll settle it, yeah? But that would mean, well, you come out, vote the way we tell you to, then you go back to your box and you'll have done the job for us. It didn't go as planned, let's put it that way. So back to Theresa May. So she goes off to Brussels to do the deal. Well, she calls an election first, and rather than romping home in that election, actually she doesn't do very well. The interesting thing about that election was that it was called as a Brexit election. She then doesn't talk about Brexit at all during the election. And nor does the Labour Party, really, does The Labour Party just says, don't worry, we'll deliver Brexit but we don't want to talk about it either. Because no one could talk about it because the parties are both so divided. Is that fair? Exactly right. But they both stand on manifestos that say, we will deliver on the people's vote for Brexit. Don't worry about that. And then Theresa May proceeded to put forward a range of very unpopular, ludicrous policies. And one of the things that's also occurred, which is important to maybe understand, is in the council local elections that had happened before the general election, there was a big upheaval, which was that a lot of working class Labour voters voted Conservative in those elections Mm. because they were Leave voters. And a lot of middle class Remain voters voted Labour. So Mm. there was a switch around thinking that the Labour Party were more likely to overturn the election. So the political parties, which historically have been divided on class and Labour and wealth, became de facto pro or anti-EU parties, even if the leaders didn't even acknowledge them. That's exactly the way it happened. As it happens, they're now associated with civil war around this very question. They're probably not going to survive this in the long term. It's so weird to have a party system organized around issues that seem in some ways archaic and don't address the great issue of the day. So this is not confined to this country, but one of the problems with the parties over the last two decades is that they've been hollowed out and they've become quite managerial technocratic parties Mm. that have actually not had very strong social bases anyway. And one of the big explanations I think of Brexit is it was a revolt against that managerial kind of disdainful distant sort of establishment. It's not just managerial, Claire, isn't it? That the crazes have taken over both parties at the local level. If you're talking about that as subsequently, I'm saying that this was a reaction against a fellow hollowed out post-ideological set of parties. Subsequently, of course, what Brexit has unleashed is a different question. I mean, then we're now talking about all sorts of different interests emerging. So, So, so far in the narrative, democracy is functioning. The people voted to leave and the government acknowledged that they would leave. There's no problem so far in terms of democracy. The story gets complicated by two things. The negotiations with the EU happen behind the backs of the electorate, if you want, and which is fair enough. I mean, wouldn't... Well, they're highly technical, right? But what I'm saying, so you sit around for two years, there's a culture war about Brexit, but broadly speaking, apart from people shouting at each other and insulting each other, 
everybody carries on with their lives, right? Mm. But there is a kind of deep rift in society, deeper than maybe people had anticipated. That's the culture was for you. However, but then what happens is before Christmas, it became clear what kind of deal had been negotiated. This is last Christmas to go Christmas. Yes, uh, 2018. Yeah, 2018. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but it became, it emerges that the negotiations with Brussels have been conducted in a way that is not going to allow what most people who voted leave thought, which was to cleanly leave the European Union. And is that essentially because of the complexity of the Irish question? The complexity of the Irish question emerges then as one of the big issues. And no one even knew that when the vote happened in the first place. Neither side made, drew attention to it. And Although in fact, people, it did might, they know it? Did the pundits like you, were you aware that this would happen? I don't think it's as big an issue as it's been turned into. And therefore, you could see it was a technical issue that you would have to deal with, but not the big political issue that it's become. Mm. And I don't want to go into the detail of that, but I think it's been overstated on both sides mm. myself. What then happened was I started to meet and hear from people who'd voted leave before it became obvious what these negotiations meant, that people were saying, oh my God, have you seen what's in this proposal? Mm. Now, what's changed, and this is an important point for democracy, is if in the past a government could say, don't worry, we've got this nice little deal, we assure you it's Brexit, you don't have to worry about it. Because of this renewed interest in democracy, people would say, excuse me, I've read it on page 33, section 2A. Mm. And when I say people would say that, I mean, Joe Smith down the road or oh, Sarah Jones or the, anyone, yeah, everyone. The people in North Wales you referred to earlier. People were paying attention. So again, democracy is working. Democracy is working. They're watching their government. Exactly. In the interim, however, the decision is taken away from that referendum and confined to Parliament. So we now have this is where the crisis lies. But isn't Britain a parliamentary democracy? Yes, but this is the difficulty. We have a Parliament in which the majority of MPs disagree with the electorate as they voted at the referendum. So about 70 to 80% of the, M I can't remember which it is, MPs in Parliament want to remain in the EU. Do you know what I mean? Voted remain. So they've essentially so hijacked the process. So there is a crisis because Parliament itself is divided anyway, not along party lines, but along whether you stay in or how you leave or all of these different factions. But anyway, the decision has now been removed from the electorate. So the electorate stand watching abhorred. So in your view, the villains aren't this ERG group, the right wing of the Tory party, or the William Rees Moggs or the Boris Johnsons. The villains are the Remainers in Parliament. There's lots of villains in Parliament and I don't want They're to kind villains, of combine. <laughs> um, because there's lots of tensions because then a lot of the people who support Remain, this is a popular point, by the way, want a second referendum. They want what they call a people's vote. And that's a scam, you think? I think it would be hugely damaging to the democratic process. Because but nonetheless, the they, But they see themselves as representing the people again. So you have Because they're so convinced layer. with the sort of the truth of their position. Is yes, that and the they also think that the electorate were lied to. That and they tend to be sort of metropolitan liberals. That's as they're characterised and with some Caricatured truth, or characterised? Uh, both. <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't want to do the same thing that people do to me all the time, which is to over-caricature people. But nonetheless, that's got a popular mandate. It's got a, a lot of people support it. But what I'm saying is, is that if you've got the ERG on one side, which is the European Research Group, which is the kind of hard Brexiteers, i.e. you're considered to be an extremist these days if you just want to leave the EU, even though that's in fact what was voted for. They're kind of holding on over there. 
You've then got a group of people who say, let's overturn the whole thing and we'll do that via a second referendum because we should remain. And if you ask the people again, they'd have changed their minds because they were so ill-informed the first time. So things have polarised essentially, both in Parliament and actually in the country. You've also got a situation where, whilst I think some people have changed their minds on both directions, there's been recently a well-known journalist, Peter Obon, and commentator who was a Leave supporter who's just come out and said he's changed his mind, it was a disaster. I would say that there's no substantial indication from the polls of any major shift. So actually, so if you had cri- a second referendum, right. I think it would go the same way. So in very brief terms, Claire, in a couple of sentences, what is the crisis here of democracy? That Parliament is not carrying out the will of the people. The Parliament is dysfunctional now. That the party political system is broken. All of those things and more. And that's quite serious, isn't it? I mean, people see that Parliament is at odds with the country and seems to be defying an electoral mandate. Secondly, that it itself can't agree on anything because it's actually so split into different directions that as a functioning Parliament, it's also problematic that they can't agree. Even if it's to agree to be in defiance of the people, they agree on that bit, but then after that, they disagree. And then... The party system as such, I think, is now in crisis. So there's been lots of stories recently from both political parties that activists won't sign up to go and canvass or stand in local elections because they're so disillusioned with the fact that their representatives are behaving in this way. I think that we're seeing something of what's happening around Europe, which is the collapse of mainstream political parties. I don't think in the UK it'll happen straightforwardly, but I can say that this is not over and a lot of people will say i'm so fed up of this i just want things to go back to normal and i mean a lot of politicians and commentators think that if only we could just get some kind of a fudgy deal everything will go back to and we'll all forget all about it it's much deeper problem than that i don't think people will forget for generations and the acrimony and the bitterness means that and this is where i get worried that if you feel that you are not being ruled by consent, that you've used your vote in good faith and then it's ignored, that Parliament doesn't any longer act on behalf of the people, then what are you going to decide? So what's the, the, the worst case narrative here? Is it that people turn their back on parliamentary democracy, the rise of a charismatic leader, an Erdogan, a Trump, a Bolsonaro in the UK? The political parties just fall apart. People stop being involved with them and democracy loses its legitimacy. Is that the worst case scenario? I think so, yes. And I mean, it doesn't mean that there can't be positive outcomes because the more positive way of looking at it, I think it's tragic to hear so many people saying, I will never, ever, ever vote again. And so people, everyone's saying that? That's a very popular sentiment. Amongst Leave voters, you've got to understand, amongst Leave voters... Vote in a plebiscite or vote in anything? No, ever. For anyone. And these are not just people who've never voted before and voted for the first time in the referendum, which, by the way, was a huge turnout with a massive, the largest vote in British history. They're not just saying they'll they'll never vote in a referendum. They're giving up on political parties mainstream and saying they won't vote again. It's not just going to turn into an apathetic kind of disengagement. It's a deep fury and sense of betrayal. That's not good, in my view. And can it will emerge right? Maybe positively in some instances, if positive parties emerge, but we all know what the danger is. Before we get on to some positive solutions to this, 
Often people talk about Brexit and Trump in one breath or one sentence. Are they the same thing, do you think? They're not the same thing because there was an engaged electorate that really did think about whether it wanted to be in the EU or not. So and you're saying that didn't happen in America? No, no, I'm saying that it wasn't about the EU in America. But uh, it's I'm, about I'm just being, sort of no, similar I, I, forces, I nationalism, just, immigration, I don't think the role that, of elites. Yeah, I don't think that nationalism is quite point. I wasn't trying to uh, disavow any kind of similarities. I'm just saying there were specifics in each instance that are, you just don't want to say they're the same. I think that you can see throughout Europe and with Trump's America that people who were erstwhile ignored and feel that they didn't have a voice in politics have fought back and that in different ways they wanted to give a bloody nose to the establishment. But they were also informed enough to say, no, I actually prefer Trump versus Hillary or I want to leave the EU and get away from an anti-sovereign, uh, uh, something that affects our sovereignty. Just on the nationalism point, this is quite important, I think. I think national sovereignty is not the same as kind of parochial nationalism. And one of the ways that the Remain side in the referendum discredited themselves was to try and characterise anyone who argued for national sovereignty as being kind of right-wing, ultra-nationalist, ethno-nationalist, parochial. And that was an insult rather than understanding that sovereignty does take the form of nation-states, and there's nothing wrong with saying we want more of it. A brief comment, Claire, on the role of the internet and Facebook in particular here. And some people at least blame certainly Facebook for the supposed manipulation of the vote. I think that um, there was a very long attempt at saying, and it's undoubtedly the case, that people largely on the Leave side tried to use data and Facebook provided my data to read voters and manipulate them and to influence, well, manipulate's a loaded word, to influence voters via the use of Facebook and social media in very similar ways that Obama did in the American election, successfully managed to do that. But I don't think that it swayed the vote. And the idea that somehow it's a discrediting thing that you do that or that you somehow that was substantial. One of the things that social media has done, which is fascinating to me, is that it's led also to a greater sense of solidarity. More people who've never been on social media have joined it. There's a sense in which people now can debunk establishment. That's what so I'm again, saying. more of a tool, a technology it's, for democracy exactly. rather than it, against democracy. It can go either way. It's also indicated the depth of bitterness and bile that exists because there's so many hashtag groups on both sides who are kind of insulting to each other. You can see that, but at least you can see it and kind of measure something of the temperature of the country via it. So, Claire, is technology the solution here or do we need to rethink democracy? Last week... We had James Bridal on the show, the author of The New Dark Age, who used the model of citizen assemblies in Ireland as a solution to figuring out complex problems in large democracies and the Irish ability to solve or at least to regulate or legislate the abortion issue in contrast with the mess of Brexit in the UK. Are citizen assemblies the solution here? Well, citizen assemblies is being widely talked about and people now say we should have had them during the Brexit referendum. But in fact, they themselves can be open to manipulation and kind of tutoring, and it's not quite as raw and dirty as the kind of ask the people. I'm not kind of ideologically opposed to them. I think that moving forward, the point is the referendum in, in the UK happened one way, and you have to respect that. Whether you would then say, let's look at new models, that's fine with me. What I would say is, is that once you have a referendum, it has to hold whatever form you had. So, for example, the abortion referendum in Ireland is a really good one. They had it. 
one side won. Can you imagine if the government had ignored it? It doesn't matter what, how it was conducted. Can you imagine if they just said, thank you very much, we've asked you, now go away, you've got it wrong. And also, I'm guessing that had the citizen assemblies decided that abortion should remain illegal, metropolitan liberals would have been up in arms and they'd say these citizens assemblies are just vehicles for populist rage exactly and you can imagine if they'd said similarly on gay marriage you know we don't actually approve of this those referendum results coincided with what the establishment were hoping might happen if you see what i mean Um, and that can happen right but it's also true that in a very famous irish referendum in relation to the eu when the irish voted against the eu not about leaving it but in the past guess what? The EU told them to go and have the referendum again until they got the right result. That's the way it feels it's happening here as well. So perhaps the real problem is not so much an institutional political one or a structural one in terms of constitutional democracy, but a cultural one associated with our views. We have become so intolerant of other people's opinions that democracy can't work because we won't accept the legitimacy if the other team wins. I think that what democracy really means hasn't been felt for many decades. You know, people haven't really had to think about what it means to say the demos decide. You know, MPs themselves don't feel themselves to be servants of the people, which is what they are. That's what they're there to do. And not not in a straightforward kind of you do what we tell us, but they are beholden to. They only get authority and legitimacy through the electorate. And suddenly the electorate are back on the historic stage and people are a bit sort of like, oh my God, look at them. They're a bit of an unruly rabble. I think, if anything, it's enlivened my view that democracy and popular sovereignty is exactly what we need to solve the problems. Because actually people, when they come alive politically and talk about things, exhibit that they aren't part of a group think, that they're prepared to think for themselves. And the fact that the politicians have turned their back on democracy doesn't mean the rest of us should. And finally, Claire, I can't resist doing this. I know it's a dumb question, but I have to ask it. And I'm sure you've been asked it a hundred times before. It's Tuesday the 9th of April, it's lunchtime in London, we're, at the, uh, we're in the heart of Soho, one Greek street. How's this thing going to get resolved? What's going to be the final, final outcome here? I don't think we're ever going to leave the European Union, um, as an aside. So it's an ongoing process. nightmare. It's an ongoing nightmare that will fudge <laughs> and go on. Um, it's almost gone past that now, though. People who say this is not good for the economy, although it was never a row about the economy. I'll tell you what's not good for the economy is, lack of decisive leadership and nobody having the balls to sort it out. So I think what will happen is it will drag and drag and drag. Night of the living dead. Night endless. of the living dead. However, it's also reignited an interest in politics in a way that I hope will have positive outcomes. That's what I'm hoping for. And I hope that democracy will thrive as a consequence even of a great betrayal. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent 
technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.